This is a Hive Mind Studio production. Hello, gods and goblins, deities and deviants, and my fellow what the fucks. You're listening to Playing with Advantage, an informative podcast about the various aspects of tabletop role playing. I, as always, am Kenneth Moffat, aka Southern DD across the various platforms. And in today's Ben of Lunacy, we have the usual suspects, folks. We have the one and only James Bardwell. Hello. And Elder Fenris, a.k.a. The Brody. <laughs> <laughs> Always glad to, ha- to be back here with you guys. Love doing this. Love having both of you on. Uh, now, today's topic is one we've kind of touched on a lot with various things, especially when we did the horror uh, episode. And that is, what are some tips to building a villain? So you start with two legs and, oh, but not literally. Okay. Yeah. So some tips to building a a big bad evil guy or just the antagonist of your campaign. Because at its core, that's kind of what, what he's going to be. He's going to be the, in some other shape or fashion, the opposing force of your story. Uh, the one that his goals tend to align, at least at the beginning, against your your players. When you guys sit down and begin to build your campaign, what are some things, some processes that you go through when you're making your your overarching villain? I think kind of uh, kind of like in any situation, it depends on what you're going for, what type of setting you're in. Uh, do you want something that's relational to the characters so that they kind of sympathize with a little bit? Do you want just like a rage monster? Or, you know, what what are you looking for for the setting for a bad guy? You got I think you got to start there. Yeah, piggybacking off of what James said is like. Um, if you're, that's the first thing I look at when I'm making my story is, um, okay, what's the story about? All right. What's the opposing force? What is What is the challenge for the players? I know, uh, I've been in a campaign, uh, with Brody. It was a horror campaign and, uh, like there were creatures that were the bad guys. There was a kind of overall evil, but like he, at some point made the weather <laughs> feel like, a, you know, a, a bad guy. It almost, like the Tempest almost had personality. It would intensify. There were sound effects, that kind of stuff. So I really think that it, what you what you kind of focus on and how you present it plays a lot into how well your bad guy fits your setting. Are, are you saying Brody made Aliens versus Twister? Is that what was going on here? <laughs> yeah, what was that? Xenonado. <laughs> Zeno- <laughs> uh, that was in the Mountains of Madness game. Oh yeah, yeah. You made you made dark rooms and uh, snowy weather, scary as hell. Well, that's just part of the atmosphere. I mean, yeah, but to be fair, in like the Lovecraftian mythos, a lot of times the weather seems to bend the will of these eldritch creatures. So it was kind of like the the forerunner for yeah. the big bad guy. That's that's actually kind of interesting. What I do is I always like I have my my overarching villain, but I have learned it's it's it is one of my rules of dungeon of, as a dungeon master. If you put it on the table, you are giving your players the chance to not only interact with it, but also to kill it. And it, it's a little bit different in D&D than in GURPS, because in GURPS, a baby with a plastic knife can kill a god. That is just how open the system is. And that's literally, it's, it's that open. It's that maneuverable. Now, in 5th edition, with levels and such, it's a little bit different. But still, if you put it on the table... That means in some way you are ready for your players to affect it. I have had to learn through years. I'm looking at you guys at Elder Dragon Games. Through years of heartbreak and headache that I only put something on the table 
when I'm ready for it to be dealt with. I do what I call a pyramid scheme of villainy. Uh, so you have the top, the the overarching, ultimate, you know, big, bad, evil guy. And then beneath him, you have his generals. And underneath that, you've got the henchmen. And then that, you have the goon, just that whole kind of thing. You you build up to your big, bad villain. Because I've had a game where literally the first session, I threw the villain on the table. And rolls were made. And the villain is now dead. Well, crap. So I have to rewrite this entire campaign now. I think I think most DMs have been there. I know I have. <laughs> I think we've even talked about it on the show. You know, if you put it on the table, yeah. like you said, you've, your players are innovative. They may kill that thing. Yes. So just be aware, you know, have an exit strategy. <laughs> well, it's like up until 5th edition, the Tarasque never had official statistics because your players weren't meant to deal with it. It was an end-of-world threat they're supposed to look at and go, ah, and run away from. But now in 5th edition, you actually have statistics for the Tarasque. Oh, it's in 4E, too. It was, it was in 4E as well. Yeah. We just forget about we it just because forget, yeah, that's, you that's, block it from memory. Um, what edition is that? Uh, it goes 1, 2, 3, 3.55. Uh, 3. That's how that works. That's how counting works. <laughs> that's how numbers work. That's how yeah. numbers work. <laughs> uh, we, we are going to have to do a, uh, do an episode on the fourth edition, the the darkness. Sorry, of- I blanked out there. I don't, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Much like those other two D&D movies. Uh, all right. I'll freely admit that uh, part of the reason why I love DMing, aside from storytelling, is uh, I get to play all the bad guys. That's that's. Fair. I enjoy it so much. That's fair. That's probably telling of something. Well, I mean, when when I was in college, I have a I have a minor in theater, and I we do a lot of productions. Because look, I I have a very obvious build and body size. I have a very and anytime they wanted the this over like this menacing villain, I got to play the bad guy, and it's fun. Okay, it's fun to look at somebody, and yeah, it's acting. But when you step on stage. And this this look of obvious fear and you know anxiety and you know maybe maybe that's why I became a dungeon master. Uh. <laughs> See, I think that's kind of telling too as to how bad guys are interpreted in our games, yes. right? Because for me, I, I've spent a lot of time in my life kind of as the black sheep of the family, so I spent a lot of time trying to convince people I'm not the bad guy, <laughs> right? So the bad guys I really like to use, too, are very relatable. And they're like, you know, you look at them and you're like, well, I see what he's saying and he has a point. That's not the way to go about it, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what I enjoy using. Now, like the Tarras, that we mentioned that. What of the tiers that you had mentioned there, where would the Tarrasque fall in that? Okay, uh, well, the uh, the Tarrasque is kind of one of those, it's just power psychotic. He, he is there to cause chaos to uh to just destroy things he, he is very much that overarching ultimate in-game big bad evil guy as his motivations are very primordial there is no rhyme or reason he is just an angry monster that wants to destroy i was about to say the tarasque isn't really evil per se it's just yeah. a force of nature still a villain though when you're living in the city that well, he's trashing <laughs> yeah i mean i would I would label that as just a straight up antagonistic force, not necessarily evil. It was so, what would you say? What would you say is the keynote that separates them, something from being an obstacle and being a villain? What's the denoting factor there, guys? Motivation, motivation, and purpose. Motivation yes. and purpose. Okay, all right. Uh, like, for, I mean, a, a very common thing in like if you're because when like traveling in a D and D game is to do encounters. Most of those encounters are either monstrosities or creatures, you know, trolls, owlbears, wolves, chimeras, this kind of stuff, where their motivation is their their nature. 
Uh, it's actually kind of what it, what defines a monster, a monstrosity in D&D is its very nature is it just wants to destroy things. Yeah. Whereas a beast or an animal, you know, it's food, territory, uh, that that kind of stuff. Uh, but whereas, you know, the, the Tarrasque is a monstrosity, it just, it's in its nature just to be violent, just to cause chaos. So what, what would you say is the furthest away from that on the spectrum? What does that look like? That would be... The kind of the, the 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 mastermind, the one that he you you never see him anywhere. He's almost like he's playing a game of chess. Everything is very subtle. The movements are are very hard to notice. Uh, the the character that comes to mind in literature and media is the Moriarty character, where if if Sherlock Holmes did not was not there to see what was going on to draw the lines where there honestly were very little to start with, Moriarty would have gotten away with everything because he he manipulated everything in such a way that it looked like he wasn't there at all. Whereas the Tarrasque is very, very prevalent, very in your face, that blunt force kind of kind of uh quote unquote villain to say. Uh Moriarty is that character that he could be your best friend. He could be an ally of the players the entire time. And they would never know it until it was too late. Those, I'll admit, those are the kind of characters I love. I've been at a game where it was it was literally the the starting NPC we met. He was our best friend. He helped us get our house and this, that, and the other. And it turns out the entire time he was playing us against everybody else, the very people we thought we were taking down, we were helping. I love those bad guys. It, it literally became the moment of, are we the baddies? That, that whole kind of thing happened, yeah. I was about to say, that sounds familiar. I was just fixing to say, for us, like for me, the campaign uh, where I got to really interact, where we all dealt with the villain like that, was Hawk in the original uh, Stagande campaign. Um, he was, we thought he was a friend of ours, right? And we've talked about him on, on the podcast before. Probably one of my favorite villains, though, is Maroc. Um, that was the, I don't, was he the, he wasn't really the end villain of that because we had more of a monstrosity nature type end villain in that one, didn't we? Yeah, the end villain was a an, a minion of a greater eldritch entity. But in all hindsight, looking back now, General Maroc should have been the penultimate villain of that campaign. 100% agree I, with that. Yeah. We did a whole story arc revolving around him. And before that, I had left cookie crumbs and little hints here and there that something was happening behind the scenes. Y'all went to a masquerade ball because y'all were trying to get... I don't even remember what y'all were trying to do there, but y'all were just kind of mingling about. And some of you were like listening and on other people's conversations and talking to guests. And there was a lot of talk about certain things and individuals like money being moved of supplies, stuff like that. And, and y'all at the time y'all were like, I don't know what any of this means. But then later you come to find out it was, it was these people supporting general Merrick. They were giving him money yeah. and supplies and everything. They were getting ready. And see, we kind of talked a little bit before the par- podcast started. We yeah. kind of chit-chatted a little bit. And uh, in that campaign, uh, I had a character named Shame. And we got an opportunity to do something that Moffat said you don't usually get to see. And that's like the bad guy functioning in his element. Because usually yes. you just see the results of that. But because uh, that character had kind of you know betrayed the party... Um, we would occasionally have a sides where you got to see what Maroc was doing because that character was there, terrified uh, because Maroc was a really scary bad guy. 
You know, and then also, you know, you could illustrate that the way you did with that party. Um, one of the things I like most about that villain was the relatability. Like, there was a real issue that he was trying to address. And the party was okay, would have been okay, I believe, with a lot of what he was doing up till this specific point. Yeah. You know, so there there is some value, I think, in the relatability of a villain. Um to to some extent, depending on your setting. Well, let, let's one of the most one of the most common rebel villains uh, that, especially these days, aside from well, they're within the same universe, aside from Loki, is Thanos. At his base, Thanos wanted to wipe out half of life in the universe. Yeah, that if 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 the Avengers, if all that was they were told is that hey, he just wants to get the stones to snap his fingers and kill half of all life in the universe. He's just an he's just a villain. He's chaotic, but you got to see behind the scenes in the movies where it was the universe cannot sustain this many entities. Mm-hmm. I want to, I, as you would prune a dead a dead uh, limb from a tree. I wish to prune this universe so that everything will be in balance. That those who remain can and will survive and thrive. There will be no more poverty, no more hunger, all this kind of stuff. And you're suddenly going. Oh, okay. You're what you're wanting to do is technically a good thing, but you're going about it the wrong way. Yeah, that that kind of villain. That's becoming becoming a more and uh, and it's hard to do that in D and D and role playing games. The fact that uh, you were able to like, kind of get into his confidences, into his graces, when when you were in his confidences, did he have a like a a quote unquote noble cause to it, or is he just out for himself and his own goal? Like Merrock was was he I, I feel like he had genuine concern for the thing that was coming that was gonna, you know, upend the world yeah. as we know it. Like there was genuine concern there. And it seemed like from from my character standpoint, there was a willingness to make hard decisions there. And there seemed like he had an understanding that was beyond everybody else's and that he was willing to do the necessary thing. To fix the problem, the I'm reminded of the the amazing movie known as Hot Fuzz, where to fantastic movie to to win the the annual uh, best best village in the in the uh, in the country contest that uh, this village literally goes around and kills those who they who for are, the greater good the greater good that, actually it's kind of what it is it's the greater good that whole I I will sacrifice a million. To save a billion, kind of ideal. Yeah. So, I want to I want to hesitate for a moment to talk about Merog because he is one of my favorite villains that I've ever designed. And when I set out to make him, I wanted a villain that was um, methodical, brilliant, and also uh, scary. And you know, in a combat sense, but also as in like this 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 man is a genius. He is tactically outmaneuvering us at every avenue, but also I wanted him to have motivations that were believable. Yes. Like not just, oh, he's, he's evil because he's, he's, he's uh, starving children and doing this other stuff. <laughs> I think right there is where a lot of people lose it in their villains. It's the believable motivation. That's fair. Yeah. That is fair. Um, He like, he had a whole backstory. He used to be a guardian protector of the realm he uh, led an entire army to victory during like an, an age past, and then he just kind of faded into obscurity, and nobody knew what happened to him. At some point, he contracted lycanthropy, 
and ended up molding it to his will because he was that strong willed. Wow. Well, I mean, it took him a long time yeah, to get there, still, but that's, that's he cool. became a feared individual. But it wasn't just the fear that had so many people drawing to him. It was admiration and respect. Like, he had an entire army and following of people that weren't like, you know, you're being enslaved or you're conscripted. They joined yeah. willingly, and that was what made him terrifying. And uh, his motivations, ultimately, like what James was saying, was he had good intentions. He believed devoutly that lycanthropy was the answer to saving everybody because there would be no more disease, no more um, blight because werewolves are immune to eldritch blight. So there would be no more, uh, everybody would be the same. There would be no more social or racial biases. And he, he viewed that as a win and everybody else that followed to him believed it. And at some point during the, the whole course of that story arc, the party eventually was like, he has a good point, but ultimately it was misguided because some species in the Nine Realms couldn't adhere to lycanthropy, and thus they would become more monstrous. Yeah. And that was the point, like, no, this can't stand. Yeah. We have to stop him. There has to be another way. The uh, Recently, they, My Natural Ones game, they finished the first kind of arc where they, there was an individual named Zytheron. His backstory is he and his twin sister were cast out uh, as, as orphan. They were orphaned. They were cast out into the streets of this massive, wealthy city where no one would help them. Well, this one ent- entity known as the Arcanus, through uh, machinations and go-betweens, found them. And because the Zytheron had a certain lineage to him, uh, basically began to took them in and took care of them. Uh, became uh, basically set up to where he became leader of this world spanning uh, assassin mercenary guild called the Coterie. And basically, he was telling Zythera, you know, you are descendant of the Grand Master, that only you can open the ancient vault and get the true legacy. And he just kind of going, there's all the, the entire time, it's BS. But Zytheron didn't know that. In his mind, this person has shown me kindness. He is helping me to attune to obtain this great, powerful calling. He loves me. I will do what I what he wants me to do. And in the very end, he literally cast him aside as a pawn to get to the object that Zytheron had gotten for him. It was this whole motivation that, you know, I I don't know if the natural ones ever figured that that part out. Is that he viewed the Arcanus as a father figure? It, it basically it was it was gay, it was it was um it was gaslighting. It was emotional abuse. But in the end, the motivation that Zytheron had, he believed what he was doing was correct because you know this is the man who pulled me up. I I am now one of the most powerful men in the world. My sister is the queen of the high elves. Uh, you know, and this this man has so many plans for us. We are going to rule this world as a family. The entire time, the Arcanist is going, you were just a stepping stone. The day I pulled you out of that uh, gutter was the greatest day in your life. For me, it was an <laughs> afternoon stroll. It wasn't even a Tuesday. It was an afternoon stroll kind of thing. I see what you did there. Yeah. And then when Zytheron learned that, it broke the NPC. It broke the NPC. And so now there's a whole sub-level now they're going, well, maybe we, you know, there's, is a thing you can, the, the relatable villain to where maybe you can talk to them. Go, hey, look, I know what you're doing. I understand why you did it. 
but I don't think it was approached in the correct way. Try to maybe pull them to your side and this kind of stuff. It's it's adding a level that I cannot wait for them to come back to. But yeah, the my what I, what I've been told is my best villain is a character that all they knew him was known as Malcolm. At first, it was this entity that was moving behind the scenes in in various parts of the world, trying to do something, trying to build something, gain access to something. Uh, he he was part of the re- he was part of the reason why the ancient dragons were gone from the world, and it seemed like that he did it on purpose. He knew what he was doing and was doing it to stop a greater catastrophe. Come to find out, Malcolm was the the head scribe and egg keeper of the dragon lords, and he used to he kept what was called the Library of Aeon, where in it were prisoned the three ancient gods that the dragons uh, imprisoned at the beginning of time. This whole big thing where it turns out the gods had basically lied to Malcolm. He broke the dragon's egg, imprisoned the dragon lords under the uh, just because he thought the dragons would not have the fortitude to stop what was coming. Come to find out what was coming was the return of the three uh, the three elder gods that he, by imprisoning the dragon lords, basically confirmed what happened. So it's kind of one of those self-fulfilling prophecy type things. And the characters basically had to go in, free the dragon lords, and it just it was it was a to this day they go, yeah, that was probably one of your best villains. I'm like, well, I mean, I can I mean I'm glad you enjoyed it so much, but now I, I gotta try to top that. I mean, how do I <laughs> how do I top that? Uh okay, uh um uh clown with a red balloon, get in there. No, it's been done before. Uh I think about that a lot too. So what did did your players ever have any moments where like they would encounter Malcolm beforehand and a fight would break out. How did you subvert like losing a villain like that? Malcolm never stepped foot on the battlefield. He had go-betweens, emissaries. He would, he had a, basically a, um, uh, like better term, a hologram that would appear and interact with them. But physically he never set foot on my table, so to speak, until I was ready for, until I was ready for him to die. Uh, it actually took two times. The, the first time he showed up, he just waylaid them totally. Second time is when they they went and sought him out and finally put him down. But I, it's one of those things where if if you put it on the table, your players can kill it. And for my story, I did. He could not die just yet. For me, one of the ways I've I've kind of handled that is I love, of course, with consent, putting my characters in moral and ethical yes. dilemmas. Like I I want to see them struggle with. Do I do this? Is this okay or not? Um, I, I had a, a big bad guy, and one of my biggest pet peeves about Strahd is that you meet him several times and nobody dies. Yeah. Um, and that's, I just, I don't think that's right. But my character that was kind of similar to that power level or whatever, the way he would speak to the players is through people he was able to possess. Uh, okay. Uh, these are people who owed him, whether he gave them a loan to start a bakery because their family was poor, but they had. You know, they made good bread or just whatever. Yeah. They owed him in some way. And the contract that they filled out for him allowed him to speak through them. And he was vastly rich. So he had these contracts all over the place. And uh, if he needed to threaten the party or try to move them somewhere, he would speak, say, through this baker. Um, possibly even to the point of violence. What do you do with that as an NPC? I mean, as a PC, that's, that's... you know, this guy, is, he's the baker. He's not a bad guy. You know, he's he's gotten himself but, but, in trouble where he owes somebody he shouldn't. But if we don't do what he's telling, the, what this entity is saying for us to do, I mean, 
the we won't have the baker. It's that whole kind of yeah, thing. Like, he would literally possess the baker yeah. because that was in the contract, and then he could taunt the party or you know whatever. And, and if he decided to attack them, they they were in a bind. You know, ultimately, um, that's where they learned about subdual damage. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, please don't murder all the bakers. Uh, actually, the natural ones. I had a similarity named Ebron, where he basically was a he was called a mind wraith. Mm-hmm. He could inhabit vessels. And there was one point he was inhabiting a, a young a young child, you know, and thankfully the uh the 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 party was able to cast a banishment spell and literally like throw Ebron out of him. But there was a point they're like, you know, okay, what, what do we do? It's a kid, we can't like hurt it. What what do we do? And so yeah, it's there now that being said, I what I like to do with my villains is and it's one of the I guess the privileges of a dungeon master, those 30-page backstories that some of us like to write, James. It's me. I, I, no shame. No regrets. Those backstories are very useful when crafting a big, bad, evil guy or a mm-hmm. villain for a campaign. Now, there is a difference between using your player history and your player's history. When big cr- difference. When making a, a villain. I one of my One of my rules is there is no world outside of this table. Who you are does not exist outside the table because I do not want outside influences to to influence the game. What I mean by that is I will never, and I am, if I see it happening, this is one thing I will stop, is when somebody uses, is when a dungeon master uses a player's actual trauma, real-world trauma, no. to try to affect a reaction from them. No. that. That that is not that is not cool. That is never cool. No. If that is if that is what you need to get a reaction, either improve your storytelling skills or go find a better go find something else to do with yourself, please. Yeah. Part of my zero session is hey, I like to put my players in more dilemmas where you actually have to think about things. Is there any issues that anyone wants me to avoid or anything I need to not bring into that? You know, again, the zero sessions, one yes. of the first things we talked about, very important. You need to get that established. Because what you're talking about, not a thing you should do. No. So the talking about designing uh, your your villains, Merox. Um, I'm going to keep using him as a frame of oh, reference yeah. for fantastic villain. Uh, Merox and his his lieutenants. They were all when I designed these these characters. Uh, I looked at my party and thought about okay, I know their strengths, their capabilities, how they work together. I need to find the antithesis to this. So I designed them like player characters, not with the same full extent of abilities, but there was Merok, who was a paladin. He was an Oath of Conquest paladin. Um, there was uh, Farbodi, who was the barbarian werewolf. He was uh, part Jotun, so when he transformed to his werewolf state, he was big. Um, Hated that guy. <laughs> Uh, some of the names are, are slipping from me. Uh, there was a rogue who was uh, a grimmer, so he could teleport through shadow. And he, there was a, a, a few moments where the he... The first time we met him, it was like we were confused and in pain. <laughs> like, it was rough. He had a, um, a special weapon that could extend the range of his blade, so he could strike from shadows... And be far enough away to not get hit. Oh wow! Um, there was a monk who had contracted lycanthropy, and it happened to be 
a character from Xander's backstory. <laughs> so yeah. it was a villain in his backstory that somehow found its way into this group. So that was like a whole point of contention as well. Um, and I believe there was um, uh, Luprica, which was the lich mage that was... Oh, wait, there was also uh, Streeth, the cleric. Streeth's the one we turned. Yes, there was There was a moment. It was one of the best role-playing moments I've had at my table. Best I've ever... But one of, it was probably... I would say that's the best moment I've ever had role-playing was that session. The Me and Josh and Streeth in there, and then everything that was going on outside of so that little bubble. It, they were having this big battle, and it was in the middle of this town they were trying to save, and the rogue and Streeth were there. I can't remember the rogue's name. And these were the two lieutenants the general sent. So they they had knew, there had something that happened beforehand, and Streeth was very devout religious uh, in his faith. And something had happened where the head of the church did not bend the knee to Merok. So he destroyed the church. Right. He literally wiped it off the map. He blew it up. And this James character, Shame, who was working on the inside at the time, saw what was happening, and he saw in Streeth, that conflicting moment, because Streeth said, this is not right. And, but Streeth was not going to change, not going to, um, betray the general because he was too afraid. You don't challenge Merrick. So literally you had the star Lord Gamora moment happen. Yeah. As a player, I was tense every time I had to interact with Merrick alone. (laughs) Like it was, it was tense. Yeah. So the whole, this, Shame had relayed this to the rest of the party because at the time he was getting information to them subtly. Like, um, and this was another thing that kind of pulled on the players' heartstrings a little bit about like, is this, is this wrong what we're doing? Because Merok had taken control over the capital city of this region, and he had done so in a way that was minimal of loss of life. He took it in a matter of minutes, and this city was supposed to be impregnable. It had survived countless invasions and wars, had never been penetrated, and Merok took it over in an instant. Wow. And, and intentionally preserved life when he did it. Huh, okay. When Shane was working on the inside, he noticed that Merok was feeding the people. He was making sure that there were no uprisings, but he was also doing things in a way like the people were, un- were restless because they didn't want to be taken over. Yeah. But Merok was also not like cruelly treating these, because they were just captives of war and but he was not letting them leave either so um anyhow the whole this whole fight is happening and the rest of the party is on the outside getting their butts romped by the the rogue because the rogue had put up like a fog cloud so they were having such a hard time finding him and a matter of fact the paladin greg and uh brenvar the uh, Casey's character, the barbarian, were going down left and right. It was like a game of, of flip flop. They were in Jesus. death saves. Wow. They yeah. kept, uh, Greg was trying to heal people, keeping them up, and the rogue was just poking them, taking them down again. And uh, Josh and James's character, Butcher, shame. no, it was shame. It was shame. It was shame. That's right, because Butcher was helping them mm-hmm. fight the rogue because <laughs> he was trying to catch him. Mm-hmm. Uh, had managed to, I think, was it Liam's tiny hut? What did y'all do? It was some kind of sphere. It was, it was one of Josh's spells. I remember, like, if I remember right, he had to concentrate to keep this up, but it created, like, this void that we could subsist in, but an entire building 
had crumbled on top of us. Yeah. They were like in like a uh, bell tower and they were at the base of it. It looked like Ottomans and in, in Vulnerable Orb or something like that, where it's just like a giant hamster wheel, which is great. I, I remember was, we had we had so many turns to try to literally flip this lieutenant of General Merrock, the most terrifying thing in the world. And if we didn't, this thing came down on us and we died. I love what you you basically built an anti-party to go against your like you you built yes. a party to I need something you built, to challenge them. They were the Justice League. You built the Legion of Evil. Like that, that's <laughs> the Legion of Doom. The Legion of Doom. Yeah. Uh, so like throughout this whole encounter, um, there I'm noticing Josh and James sitting next to each other and they're whispering to each other back and forth. And I'm like, they're planning something. And everybody else is yelling at the table like, I'm, d- I'm down, I'm down again. So while all of this is happening, it was like a full-on like, cinematic moment. Yeah. They corner street and they're, they're like kind of corralling each other and they get in the base of this, this tower. Well, the tower collapses and Josh cashed that spell and street is trapped in here and street is we looking around. We brought the tower down on top of it. Oh, did y'all? We brought the tower down so he would have to make a decision. That's right. Uh, and Streeth was like looking at them like, you two have locked yourselves in here with me. And he's like, I'm going to kill you. And Josh was like, wait, wait. And then him and James had, uh, it was a skill challenge. They tried a few diplomacy, like um, a persuasion. They tried uh, different things. And it was such a good moment because James and Josh were like sinking. They were like, Look, this is how things are. We know things are not going well on your end. We know you know this is wrong, and we can help you if you help us. It was like a the, my best way to describe this is it was like a verbally moral boxing match. You faint, you yeah. wait for an opening, you throw a punch, you jab, you you know you hook. It was it was probably some of the best role play ever. I enjoyed that. So they actually succeeded in that. They got the all the success that they needed in the challenge, and it ended with Streeth shaking hands with them. So when this had decided, the rest of the party is unaware of this because they're they're <laughs> fighting for their lives. So the rubble clears, and they come out of the little dome, and they're like, "Oh crap! They didn't beat Streeth." Streeth walks up, dispels the fog cloud. The rogue is exposed, and he looks, jumps. To, they had landed a few hits on yeah. him, so he he was worn down by then. He jumps to try to get out of the way. Casey, as cinematic as it is, rolls to hit his opportunity attack because he was trying to flee. Natural 20. Cuts (laughs) the rogue in two. Oh, God. So they had one lieutenant down, and they had two, technically, because they had swayed one to their side. Epic, epic story. (laughs) You you actually mentioned something there about, uh, like, when you were building these, that not, like, if you go look at, like, the Monster Manual and the, the, the DM's Guide... There are so many like pre-made uh, villains and actual like NPCs, uh, but something I like to do, and you mentioned it like actually giving player levels. Like I, I will take a a character and I will build them like they were a player. Now, yeah, they'll obviously go above the certain level for the uh, for that player because one, you have to build the CR to where it is. It's it's a fight for your players, like. Yes, I am the ultimate evil and one fireball. Well, he's dead now. Um, guys, what what do we do from here? And no, but I went like talk about the, the mechanics of it. When you're building the villain mechanic wise, uh, how what's the best way to say this? How unfair are you when you're building your? You don't have to even be your like overarching, but like your 
your end of chapter villain or your your end of arc villain. How unfair are you when you're building those? He almost killed me in real life. With <laughs> I did arc. not. Yes, he did. James, give me the stink eye. So when I'm designing, like, a, as you say, the big bad, I look at it like, okay, this is most likely going to be solitude. So he needs to be able to take on a party of six to seven to eight player characters with a full suite of abilities. He needs to be able, he or she or they or it needs to be able to take on an entire party by themselves. So they need to be terrifying. The, the, the one right now that is coming up for the natural ones in their, uh, cause they finally, they finally laid eyes on the main villain for this first story arc. The villain is called the arcanist. Uh, he, he showed up, he cast a, uh, basically a hold person targeting a bunch of people. Uh, and they went to make their wisdom saves. I'll never forget the look on my wizard's face. Finnegan, but he goes, ha, 23. And I went, failed. <laughs> what? What? Because there, 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 there are mechanical reasons why, but his spell save DC is a 25. Uh, this is a end of game villain. I, 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 I told guys, very few, very few of my villains do I build unfairly. I built this guy to wipe this party. That means is he's pre-made. I have made him. He is set in stone. This is what he does. When you get to him, it is going to be a fight. Because there are times like in the middle of a fight, I'll go, okay, this 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 monster in the level. Let me let me adjust the numbers a little bit to make it more challenging. Or crap, especially early on, crap. This is too much. Let's bring these numbers down a little bit to make it more challenging and not like you know suddenly total party kill. Because like there are times, especially like when your the number of players change, uh, classes will switch. They may not they may not build quote unquote optimally, which that's we can get into that in the entire episode in itself. Yeah. Uh, but as a dungeon master, you have to be willing to go. Okay, I have made a little bit of a mistake here. I have overcalculated. I've undercalculated. Let's adjust. And I've done it. I've literally done it on the fly. Went. He's got eighty hit points left. Two of you are already down in death saves. One is dead. Um, you just natural 20 for 60 points. Yep. He's dead. How, how does it happen? Tell me. So you said something earlier about, um, not introducing your bad guy for the risk of the party killing them. Yeah. I'll go ahead and tell you right off the bat. I designed Maroc long before that story arc began. I gave him, I didn't adjust him once throughout that entire story arc, despite giving them the players getting new abilities yeah. and them getting items and weapons and stuff. Never changed him. Uh, he didn't cast magic. Well, I mean, he was a paladin, so he did smite, but that was it. He had two great swords, and uh, neither one of them, one of them was magical, the other one was a regular great sword. And you're like, how is this supposed to take on a party of like, well, y'all were, y'all were in the teens yeah, during I think that like story arc. 14, 12 or 14, when we first really encountered him somewhere in there. I gave, there was every opportunity they could have just, sprung a fight. Yeah. And I, it probably would have went poorly for them because, uh, the way I designed him is like, okay, I played him like I wrote him. He was a military tactician. Yes. He knew how to take down people. He knew how to play to strengths and weaknesses. And the one thing that they didn't really discover until shame had, was in the picture until almost the near very end, he had an eye patch and they just thought, Oh, it's just a war wound. He had an artifact that was an eye 
that he had replaced in his missing eye that was a zone of anti-magic. He had, a, he had a beholder's eye. Kind of. Yeah, um, so that's that. Oh, that's cool. But it no, was adjusted. No, it wasn't cool. <laughs> it it was, wasn't cool at all. The radius of it was not large. It was only about 10 feet around him. Which is what you need. Okay, yeah. When you get your... So one of the roughest things as a, a, a frequent player <laughs> is when you get dependent on your magic stuff and you don't have it anymore... That fight was so tough because we had gotten dependent on something and it wasn't there anymore. Folks, I can speak to this for firsthand experience because this past Wednesday, uh, the the game where me and James played. With play Jeff. In, I was just fixing to with, bring that with up. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Beck. That was great. Uh, the room they were in was no magic. Well, Artie shows up last and doesn't step inside the room. And it, it I'm just like watching, what what's happening? Why is... <laughs> I did not build my character in that game to be a grappler from the get-go. But once I got that belt of giant strength yeah. pretty early in the game, I started relying heavily on grappling as, you know, with a monk build. Yeah. And it was working great. Uh, and then I got in that situation with no magic and remembered that my strength scores a nine without the belt. And uh, we had to rely on battlefield mobility for, for my character. Well, thankfully, apparently that game already came to play. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I rolled my di and got it, and my my intervention was telling the goddess make this fight even, and the <laughs> uh, the ma- anti magic zone was dispelled, and suddenly everything powers back up. I would really like to give Jeff props though, because he crafted a system for that villain so that the denial of magic yes. wasn't a constant was, that thing, was great. Yes. and it was very balanced. Like I, I was really, like it, really it, proud of that. That was, was really good. He could go offensive, he could go defense. It was very, that was beautiful, beautifully done. Yeah, it affected his abilities and statistics, how he decided to approach it. Yes. Like, you know, when he shut down magic, you know, there were other things that he was denied. Yes. That was really good. No, uh, no, I was gonna, I'm gonna say that. I was about to say, is that a is that a subtle jab at me, James? Because no, no, it's not meant to be subtle. <laughs> Look, they gave no. me so much no. hell over the anti magic eye. I was sick that night. Like I was sick, but like I really, we've been waiting for this. Um, and like I was like deathly sick, but I did not want to miss it because we were all so pumped for this fight. We've been wanting to kick Merrock's ass for a while, <laughs> and it had come to a head, and we were gonna get our chance. Um, and I literally, by the end of the game, I was wrapped in a blanket, my head on the table, wow. like drooling, <laughs> trying to trying to get through this. That's why I keep saying that Brody almost like literally real life killed me with his bad I guy. Mean, look, I've, I've told the story where my players basically put me in a coma twice. For, <laughs> yeah, so. I will say, I will say though, like all jokes aside, um, one of my favorite things about playing with Brody is the balance he brings to the fights. Yeah. Um, it always feels like a challenge. You're never sure you're going to get it, but when you do, it's very close. That's the a to me when I when I design these these villains. I like I said, I will try to design my overarching villain first. I will design them to be the toughest thing. Like they could go against five level twenty characters and still you know come out smiling. But at the same time, that shouldn't be all of your villains. Uh, like you're, you shouldn't. I believe a, a good story doesn't just have the the one main villain and that's it. You, I like what I call the lead up to it, where you have like you know, your local bad guy and then the the one above that, and so yeah. until it leads up to. Now they don't have to actually be like a line to the big bad guy, but it's uh, let's. I mean the the penult the penultimate fantasy villain the most think of is Sauron. Uh, well, let's look at the orcs. They. Let's be honest; they weren't they weren't a fight at all. Like, I mean, literally, 
The, the only reason they were dangerous were their numbers. Four hobbits were taking them on and doing just fine. <laughs> that was your local, your, these are the, the, the mooks. These are your local henchmen. These are the guys that they show up, you know, Hey, you know, we were, you know, we're, we're the local gang. For me, I think about it kind of like how I watch a television series. Like I, I remember Angel, if any yeah. of you are incredibly old and liked oh, vampire wow. shows. Uh, there was like the the overall villain, Wolfram and Hart, right? Yeah. And like that was the show. That was like you knew when that ended, the show was done, yeah. right? Um, and then you had, you know, whoever the big bad was of that season. Like this is this season's main bad guy. And then you had all the little stuff that happened that they would go investigate the, and be a part of and all that. The episodic things. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, that that's probably a fantastic function and form for your bad guys to take yeah. place. Now, that's, uh, that's kind of how I write my, my campaigns, my adventures. Mm-hmm. Like I'll do almost like season by season, yeah. because, like a TV show that's almost. It. But like, there's an overarching villain that you may sprinkle in a little bits here and there. there. Yep. And then you got your your seasonal villains. It's like this. That's mine's the exact story. Like the the natural ones. I I told them that guys. I have written two arcs. Your first arc is called the Arcanist arc. There are three chapters. Uh, the second arc, which I, they don't know the name of the entire story arc yet, but again, it has three chapters. the The intent is to take them. It was to take them from level three to level twenty. They will step into the last universe ending fight. At level twenty, which I think is an amazing thing to do, because one, you really get to go to a level twenty, level twenty game sometimes. Yeah. Most modules cap you about level fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, and they're level twenty. They want that ultimate god tier fight, but there is is kind of a downside to making a really good villain. I've seen it happen before. It has happened to me. I, I understood that. It's when you don't want to let the villain go. Mm-hmm. You you fall in love with them so much. This is a great villain. They you know they the players it's they they love it. It's interactive. Yada yada yada. We're at the final fight. That last hits a natural twenty to put them well below. Nope, he's still going. He's still alive. <laughs> On his turn, he's going to teleport out, and or or something else happens. And no, he didn't die. Actually, quote from a game, he had four clones. You just killed one of the clones. It's not actually him. We refer to those as underwater ninja tigers. (laughs) Yep. You have to explain the underwater ninja uh, tigers. It's an impossible thing that shouldn't exist, but has to in order for some circumstance to come about. That's fair. I, I am very much a believer in as much as I hate, as much as I hate it, a book has to end. A story. Yeah. For a story to be good, to resonate, it has to say the end. Yep. That cover has to close. There are characters that I wish I could still play. I bring them back occasionally as NPCs. There are things that I wish we could we could do again. But what makes them no book is as good the first time you read it. Yeah. That's just that's that's it. And there is no no character, no villain. Nothing is as good as that moment when after it's all said and done. The dungeon master has closed their notes. There's a moment of silence. You just kind of, <sighs> yeah. that's the end of the story. I, I'm a big proponent of stories running their course yes. and being done. Like that that first game we played, I loved my my character Butcher. I I want to play him again so bad. I would love to. <laughs> One shots. Um, One shots. But like that story, that story was told, and we finished it, and it was in a fantastic place. That's done. Got to move on, but it's like it's kind of like when you have a fantastic friend and they move away. It's not it's not that you don't think about them fondly. You just 
where it is yeah. now. So I got something, and I kind of want your opinion on it, Moffat. Um, I Mar- think you should go with like like a yellow and red highlight. And no, oh. <laughs> uh, so Maroc was what we would assume we we think of automatically in the first Stagande campaign is like the penultimate villain, but he wasn't. He was the villain before the final one. Yeah, yeah. Like the final story arc was the reveal of the eldritch entity that had been there for a long time hiding. Yeah, and it had like ah, oh, I'm. It's time he re- revealed himself and everything. He, I designed that fight to be. It was it was difficult. Um, he did a lot of area effects. He had layer actions. He had the the whole kitten caboodle. Yeah, whole shebang. Uh, high damage. He cast meteor like more than once. It was like this is some difficult stuff. But at the same time, they didn't really. It wasn't as scary or as challenging as it was fighting Maroc. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> my feelings going into that fight was we have this. We beat Maroc. Yeah, there, I'm like I've... so. I'm like, how do? What did I do that? I could go back to try to recreate that feeling. And I just, I haven't quite figured out yet why the big bad kind of fell flat on his face. See, the thing is originally, and I can finally let this be known if they ever listen, Malcolm was not the original in, in boss. The original in boss were the three elder gods, but there was so much emotion tied up in, in Malcolm. There was so much immersion in his story and where they came to in their minds, this was the mountaintop. And so I was able to craft a quick story about how that he was, instead of breaking the chains and freeing them, he was going to bring their power to him. And he became the new, the, the final villain. But it was that moment where it's, you could see it, it's that look of when they're, that final, you know, as they roll for initiative, like they're, they're getting amped, they're getting pumped. That emotional connection, that is... That is where you know, okay, you have an amazing villain here. These these guys, they they hate him. They want him gone. Like they are, they're excited, and it's that that emotional connection. And it's again, I've had it happen to where you know a it's very look every every NPC that they ask a name for, they make an emotional connection to random farmer number thirty seven. Okay, now his name is Jimmy, and he has a family, and it's you never know what your players will connect to, but the fact that they connect to something lets you know I'm doing an, I'm doing my job. They are loving this story. I can say I don't know if you remember, but like every bad guy up to Maroc, we were flipping about. I remember Voldemort Zach. We made a funny joke name up for him that is inappropriate. <laughs> Um, like we we handled a lot of those characters with oh, his, disdain. His name was Voldemort Zack. Uh, Voldemort Zack. Voldemort Zack. We called him Walmart's Ballsack. I was going to say call him Moldy Balls, Lord Moldy we, Ballsack, or something. We, yeah, yeah we called him Walmart's it was Ballsack. An ancient black dragon. <laughs> uh, but um, Merrick was different. Like Merrick was not arrogant. He was confident. The way he carried himself and interacted with the party, he didn't need to belittle us. He didn't try to. Uh, to make us feel any kind of way. He, he talked to you like normal people. He was Maroc, yes. It's actually kind of interesting because uh, something I wanted to talk about was what are, I mean, because again, we, we talk about like some of our favorites. There are bad ways to do a, a villain. And like, I think one of the ways is that, the again, I'll talk about my Arcanist. When he first showed up, he told the players, you have my interest. 
pray you never gain my attention. He's not trying to belittle them. He, that's a warning to them. But I've, I've seen games where as soon as the villain shows up, just begins to belittle and berate and insult the players to where they're, the person is trying to garner a reaction of, we should hate this guy. Then it just becomes a... I don't Name-calling contest. Yeah, that's it. For, for me, one of the things that turns me off for a villain is when they immediately need to make an assumption about their superiority over the party. Yes. Like, okay, maybe you are more powerful than us, but you're just making me want to kill you and then and, and disrespect you and that kind of stuff. But when you have a villain that he's concerned with what he has to get done, and this is my path. Yes. And I hope for you for I hope that our paths don't bisect in a negative yes. way. Yeah. But like, you know, you get in my way, I'm gonna kick your ass and you guys are punks and all that kind of stuff. You just <laughs> One, you know. of my, one of my favorite quotes, it actually has nothing to do with it, but I've taken it to making bad guys because it works. It was from the, and I'm about to, you're about to hear a, of a audible perk up from down the table when I mentioned this, because it was from Mass Effect 2. It was when the, you go see Warlord or Kier, and he's made grunt. And he says, I'm about to give the genophage the greatest disrespect. It is the disrespect of being ignored. <laughs> Why should my villain who has this overarching world camp world plot concern himself with what these four heroes at this town are doing. Okay. Yeah. They messed with a local general. It's fine. It's not a big deal, but it's that moment. Your my villain will appear to you when he believes you, when, when you are, when he believes you are worthy of him appearing. Yep. He is giving you the respect of going, okay, I'm here now. Look, I'm bigger and badder than you are. You don't want to do this. Please go away, and we'll never see each other again. There is it's it's a form of respect. Going okay, you have my you have my interest. My attention has been gained. You okay? I'm here. What do you want? You can see that this this will not end well for you. Let's both go our ways and pray this goes no further. Now, honestly, there's nothing stopping my natural ones from going. Yeah, we're not going to tangle with him. Let's go to the other side of the world and start a farm together. That, <laughs> and then the world ends. But that's it. I like the idea of the villain that you're interacting with should fit on the stage you're performing on. Yes. If you are in the village, you're dealing with the bandits. Yes. The the world-ending bad guy is not going to show up and, hey, I see you there killing some rats. You know, you're making me nervous. Wait. Or, or I need you, you to understand how much better than you I am. If you're, if you're, if you're on a bigger scale, if you're in a bigger stage, you're at the the temple where some serious stuff goes down. Yeah, that's a different enemy than the rats yeah. and the bandits. Still, maybe not the main big bad guy. You know, don't put your main piece in a place that is not sufficient for it to fit. Yes. Uh, no, no god, le- no god level villain is going to be upset that the cut purse at the lowest tier of his of his uh his organization which is used maybe to obtain some sort of funding no god tier villain is going to show up just because a ragtag group of of you know of of nosy individuals went and you know arrested that individual no 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 well written bad guy is that eagle maniacal now yeah. there there are some that are eagle maniacal that's <laughs> yeah. fair but it that makes no sense. Ha! We have we have captured 
this this we have stopped this uh this burglary ring in the the small city of Smallville. Uh, wait, nope, DC will sue me. Uh, Littleville. Uh, that the thing is, is like the insecurities that it would take for a villain to notice someone yes. on that level would also prohibit them from, from being a higher level villain. Yes, right. I got it. I finally understand after all this time. Okay. Maroc made it personal. The the end villain, he never never messed with y'all in a way that Maroc did. Maroc went after your friends when you didn't stop what you were doing because that, you were that interfering was the with him. Yep. For killing the uh the rogue. The crackback for killing that, them and flipping right. Forbody yeah. was raising our city that we had worked so hard. And put so much into creating a safe space for people. Yeah, because at that point, he did not touch y'all. He really didn't get involved until we started flipping and killing lieutenants. Then we got noticed. The, the thing for Malcolm is the this entire time, they heard that Malcolm betrayed the uh, the dragons, that he was called the Oathbreaker. But what they what it was, it was a mistranslation. His The dragons named him not Oathbreaker. When they restored the Dragon Lords, they told them this. He is Eggbreaker, and they went to the they they went to the old island where the nests were, and they saw the like now almost fossilized remains and the broken eggshells. They literally stood among the the destru- the destruction. This one person saw with these dragons who they have become great great friends with to the point where like one of my favorite lines is the the elder like black dragon uh, kind of leaned in when well, he was the dragon of fire leaned in and threatened one of the PCs. He went, I'll make a pair of boots out of you back up. <laughs> uh, and it was that moment where I describe all this and you could just see that like, they're getting angry. Like he, and it's, it's that, that, that emotional, that personal emotional connection, connection. that uh, that's, that makes a great villain. It's the one where when his name is mentioned, it just the name will evoke a reaction. Matter of fact, I think y'all were away doing something else and y'all came back to your home. Uh, on the horizon, you just saw smoke and y'all raced back home and yeah. it was in flames. There was people lying in the streets. Y'all were just like in shock. It was like literal shock because y'all were like, this this was our home. He took something personal and meaningful from us. And I feel like if you make a villain and you want your party to feel the way they should about a villain, at some point the villain has to take something personal yes. and meaningful from the party. Yes. I, I I will just say I agree with that, and to my natural ones listening, it is planned. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so pretty much I think that kind of uh, wraps it up. The, the idea that we were uh, about villains and big bad evil guys where the whole thing is uh, a connection. Find some way to healthily connect it to your players, be it through their backstory, be it through the NPCs they know. Now, we're not saying you're at level one, have your level 20 villain show up and murder everybody's family, which <laughs> if we're talking about D&D backstories, half of them will be dead anyway. Look, when you write <laughs> your backstory, and this is something I didn't do so I started after that first Tagande game, write open-ended things into yes. your backstory. Yes. Leave strings for the DM to play with. We have to get into that in the next episode. I love that. Hopefully, you can take some of the ideas we have. Now, the, these are, again, by no means the be-all, end-all of, of how to do things. These are coming from three very experienced dungeon masters who have crafted many villains. Some worked. Honestly, some have not worked. Yeah. 
and we've kind of strung together what we thought to be the best, like the, these tips and tricks that we have to help give you a more enjoying and more immersive game. So, uh, from three very, very old dungeon masters, uh, <laughs> I'd like to say thank you all for listening to us. Wherever you listen to us, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, thank you so much. Uh, you know, follow us on there, rate us five stars. If you haven't, please go check out uh, Stagande uh, Sagas on YouTube. Check out Southern D and D, uh, the Legends of Aterra. Uh, look up the Hive in Macomb, Mississippi, on their uh, their social medias on Facebook. Uh, like I've got, I've got a Twitter, I've got a Twitch. Uh, this evening, uh, Sunday night, my Natural One Game Show, six p.m. Central Standard Time, folks. There is so much coming uh, down the line from the Hive social media. And we just cannot wait to share it all with you. And so thank you guys so very, very much. As always, I am Kenneth Moffat, a.k.a. Southern d and I'm James at The Hive. You guys be safe out there. I am Elder Fan, the original villain. And this <laughs> holiday season, be it Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Yule, whatever you, whatever festival feeling you celebrate, just want to say thank you so much for joining us and listening to us. And folks... Let's be good to each other out there because we only get one shot at this. And if you don't take, if you take life too seriously, you're not going to make it out alive. Later. Uh, coming to you once more. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we have our dear friend, uh, the art. Oh, he's just flexing. I'm sorry. Never mind. Ashley, uh, mark that off then. <laughs>